Punk Rock HR is proudly underwritten by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is a B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head on over to thestarconspiracy.com. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome back to Punk Rock HR. My guest today is Minda Hartz. She's the author of the book, The Memo, another book called Right Within, and an upcoming book for young adults called You Are More Than Magic. Minda is a repeat guest on Punk Rock HR and a perennial fan favorite. And on this episode, she takes us back 12 years in her career and even 12 months. And then we flash forward to talk about what's coming up for Minda in her future. And we're doing this to help you bet on yourself, to put yourself first, to prioritize your well-being, and to come out a winner in 2022. I love this conversation because Minda and I are buddies and we're always trying to find a way to get together. And you're going to hear a little bit of this in the podcast because it's my dream to go hang out with Minda in the Maldives. So if you want to hear about two people who have been maybe where you are, a little stuck, unsure about where to go in your life, and have broken out and created a new model for themselves, well, sit back and enjoy this episode of Punk Rock HR. Hey, Minda, welcome to the show. Hey, Lori, thanks for having me again. Happy to be back. Oh, I'm so pleased you're here. Listen, anybody who wants to know who you are and what you're all about can go listen to your previous show, which will be in the show notes. But I wanted to start out because so many individuals out there are scared to take a risk. And you've got this career journey where you've always bet on yourself. So why don't you tell us where you were 12 years ago. The year is 2010. What was Minda doing back then? Oddly enough, I was uh, living in California in 2010, where I'm living now again. And it was a much different situation. I was in a very toxic work environment that I kept telling myself, well, at least you're making good money, Minda. You know, sometimes the stories that we tell ourselves are not any better than the ones other people are telling us in the workplace. And I kept thinking, well, I just got to make this work. Yes, I'm not happy. I'm depressed. I'm experiencing a lot of micro and macro aggressions. But again, at least I have my paycheck and I can do fun things on the weekend. So I thought that that was life, right? And then I realized that, wait, my other colleagues, they're not experiencing these things that I'm experiencing. They're actually able to do their work to the best of their abilities without some of these constraints. And I started to kind of interrogate and investigate what would it look like if I had the freedom that my colleagues had, right? To be able to show up the way I need to and speak up for myself and those sorts of things. And it was my journey to kind of thinking about what that could be if I did use my voice. And at that time, I felt like using my voice was very risky, but I realized that I can't work this way until I'm 65. Like this is not sustainable. <laughs> Well, and I just wonder, you know, you told yourself a story. I mean, you've got all sorts of aggressions, full-throated aggressions happening to you, but you were also telling yourself a story and saying, well, I can spend my paycheck and my time on the weekends enjoying my life. Did you even do that? No, because it's funny that you say that because you take that trauma into the weekend with you, right? You take it home after five or seven or whenever you're getting home from work and you're talking about it with your friends at brunch. It's consuming every piece of your life. So yes, in theory, you're like, oh, well, at least I can go do happy 
hour, but you're taking all that baggage with you into every piece of your life. Well, I know you're really family oriented. And there was a point in my career when similar to yours, I was just consumed with my own story, right? And really unsure of how to move forward. And my family, God love them, were like, we don't want to hear another word about your job. So what was your family like back then? Well, you know, it's funny. For a long time, I didn't even tell anyone I was going through it. So my family didn't know what I was going through because I thought this was normal, right? You know, I had always kind of been told, well, you know, it's going to be hard for black women in the workplace. This is just how it is. And so I didn't feel like there was anything to talk about because I had already known that this is just the way that the workplace works for women who look like me. And so I didn't talk about those things. And so one of my biggest regrets was suffering in silence because I just thought that I had to be strong in this moment because I didn't know there could be another way. God, and your brothers love you so much. I'm sure in your family must have been just really upset on your behalf because you're right. I mean, work works differently for women of certain colors, people who express themselves differently, but still what you went through at work just flat out sucked. And so what does your family do? Like you share your journey with them. You tell them how miserable you are. Do they offer comfort? Do they want to jump in and like grab someone by the throat? How does that work? Yeah. So for years, I was kind of suffering in silence and then it started to affect my mental health, which I could no longer hide it to some people. It was starting to show up in other ways. And so I was honest with my family about what I was experiencing and thinking about leaving my job and those sorts of things. And I was just kind of at my wits end and I did need to talk to somebody. And my dad was really funny about it. He's like, I'm coming up to that workplace and I'm going to talk to them. And I'm like, dude, you know, I'm like 30 years old. You can't come popping up at the workplace. This is going to end up bad for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> You're not one of those Gen Z kids, right? His parents come in and do everything for them. Yeah. I'm like, uh, I don't think this is going to help. I don't think so. But thanks, dad. <laughs> no. I mean, that's such a natural thing, though. A healthy response, though, when your child is suffering or someone you love is suffering, you want to come in and swoop in. And I think that's got to be so frustrating for so many friends and partners out there because people in their lives do struggle and they don't know what to do, right? Because the natural inclination to go to that workplace and set someone straight is not going to be productive. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. And I don't think I was 30 years old in, in 2010, but that just popped. I was old enough for my dad not to be showing up at work, but, <laughs> but I do think there has to be an outlet, an outlet where people can voice their concerns. And if it's not at work, if it's not in HR, then it has to be somewhere. And I think that for me, the reason why I do the work that I do is because I don't want people to suffer in silence. Like I want there to be a mechanism in which people feel like, you know what, I can go to HR and have this conversation. I don't need my dad to pop up at the job, right? Because I know that there's somebody here who will take my concern seriously and at least investigate what's going on and try to help with some solutions. And so for me, I feel like for some of us who sit on certain margins or certain intersections, we don't have a place to go always in the workplace. And I think that that's where the frustration lies, feeling like you can never tell your truth. And so I hope that we can think about the workplace in a way where people feel comfortable and safe to speak their truths. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that because oftentimes we give individuals a place to go, right? This place of HR. And it's also filled with others who have been through trauma, who are dealing with aggressions, micro macro, who are stuck in a job that they don't love, are not aligned with the values of the organization. And we tell these other marginalized or non-marginalized individuals in HR, here, solve this problem that they're not set up to solve anyway. So like the entire system is broken. So when you do the work that you do, how do you stay optimistic? Because this is a pretty dark, weird place, the world of work. Whew, yeah, that is true. The world of work is a is a scary movie all of, in of, of itself at times. But I think what you're doing and what I'm doing, at least giving voice to the way that there could be better solutions, better ways to go about it. We don't have to 
go back to normal, we can figure out what better looks like. But we have to be courageous. We have to take the risk to do that. And so I am optimistic because I think that the conversation has changed over the last couple of years. I think to be able to say, you know what? We don't blame everyone in HR or we don't blame everyone in the workplace because not everybody's harming everybody. But could this be better? Could there be better systems? And I think that it was very taboo not too long ago to kind of talk about it in certain ways in that way without making enemies uh, in HR. But I think now the, the conversation has changed where we can be a little more intentional and critique ways that to make it better. And so I am optimistic about the future, but it's going to take more than just you and me, Laura. We need people listening to make sure that they are also leaning in and taking those risks too. Well, Minda, two things. You know, my next podcast is going going to be called Making Enemies with Lori Rudiman. Like, I love that. <laughs> but I also think when you talk about you and me, I mean, you're really at the leading edge of some of the work in corporations, but I'm starting to age out in my career like I feel this, you know, and years ago, I would say to these baby boomer women who are lecturing me on like being diverse and inclusive. I'm like, listen, if you could have done it, you would have already done it. And now at 46 years old, I'm like, holy smokes, if I could have done it, I would have already done it. Right. So I think my career is transitioning to really one of learning and listening, but also empowering this next generation of leaders, whether they're in HR or finance or project management, I don't care to kind of step up and take over. I think their time is now. I don't know, though, because I don't want to stay out of the fight. Minda, you have any advice for me? Like, what am I going to do? I'm all almost 47. Where should I be? You should be where you are, uh, Lori, being a rock star, leading the conversation. We need your voice. And what I really like is that we can all band together with all of our skill sets and our voice. And we can really do some things that we weren't able to do before, right? Because when we were so siloed in ways, and so we still need you pushing because you have that institutional knowledge that many of us like myself do not have in HR. We kind of are in the fringes of HR. And so we need it. And when we can have various models, models and conversations, we can actually do really great work together. And so that's something that I appreciate about you is bringing me into your life too and having these conversations because we can build off of each other. We can help each other. We can work with these spaces. And some people will hear it from you in a different way. They hear it from me in a different way, but ultimately we're, equity is at the core of what we're doing. And so I think what was missing before is that we weren't all working together intergenerationally. And now we get the opportunity to do that and really make good change. Well, dang it, Minda, I'd like to clear a path for both of us to vacation regularly at the Maldives. So that's what I'm trying to do. That's my goal here for the two of us. Like I'm totally focused on that individual goal. Well, listen, talk about where you are and where you were 12 years ago, but how about 12 months ago? Because your life changed and changed pretty quickly, right? So what were you doing 12 months ago at the beginning of 2021? What a lot of people may or may not know is a lot of my income comes from public speaking in person and it started to uh, disappear before my eyes. (laughs) I was like, I don't know if I have an apartment at the end of 2020. I wasn't sure what that looked like for me. But what I realized was, again, we are the curators of our story. Things are going to happen at every time of our lives, but it's how we recover, how we pivot. And I had been doing how I started kind of my shows and things was always video work. And so I just went back into it. I was like, okay, in 2016, you were doing virtual stuff and you just got to tap back into that vein and just 
keep doing the work. Just because we have a new way of working doesn't mean the problems have gone away. Your voice is still needed. People still need support. And so I just kept that as the focus. I'm like, what can I control? I can control how I still show up. I can't control if I get booked or not, but I could still create. So I did the Instagram lives. I did the LinkedIn lives. I was just keeping myself out there. And I realized, again, we have more power than sometimes we allow ourselves to think about. And so I didn't want to be complicit in my own oppression. Like I could have been sitting around and be like, woe is me, right? And I'm like, well, stuff is still happening in the world. Like I still can show up for myself. And I'm glad that I did because I mean, it was a slow year at the beginning, but it was definitely one of the best growth years personally and professionally of my life. When you start to look at things a little bit differently, our stories don't have to end in the trauma, right? It was a very traumatic year, but we can redefine it. So when I think about the year 2021, you were just coming off the memo going out into paperback and getting maybe your final edits in for Right Within and then potentially book in your next book deal, right? So talk to me a little bit about the transition of your business at the beginning of 2021. Mindy, you always had the video thing on lockdown. It's like you're the queen of video, you know, like nobody worries about that. Like you got that. But here you are like out as an author in this crazy world. So what was that like at the beginning of January 2021? Yeah, it was tough because I felt like I was just getting my momentum with the memo, uh, my first book. And so I was able to be out in the streets, as they say, and meet people and really talk about the book. And then things started slowing down. And so I didn't know what that looked like. How do you sell books from the house? You know, <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I didn't, had not had that experience yet, right? And so I was concerned. But again, I realized what part of this equation can I solve? I can't force people to show up at the bookstore at this point. <laughs> I can't do anything differently. I just have to still tweet. I have to still be out there. I still have to put out content and the people who need it will find it and hopefully word of mouth travels. And I think what I didn't realize, Lori, was that because we all were online, you actually got to reach more people in ways that maybe you would have just going to one city, right? You know, before I could only go to Dallas for the day, but now we can go to Dallas, we can go to Austin, we can go to... <laughs> We can go to Jupiter. We can do all that, right? In one day. Yeah. It's like the only thing that we're limited by is our energy and our interest <laughs> and maybe our voice by the end of the day. I think it's true. Not being complicit in your own oppression is so very interesting because so many of us are walking around blaming COVID and blaming other things for the reasons why we're not taking risks, why we're not betting on ourselves. And I just think, number one, COVID's getting to be an old excuse, although it's very real. There are plenty of people out there winning who shouldn't be winning. And meanwhile, there are really great people who are sitting at home limited by their own thinking. And it's just heartbreaking to me. So your book Right Within came out in 2021 in October, if I'm not mistaken. So all the pre-work, all of that, all the marketing happened online. And this book comes out in October and it's still a terrific book. The sales are strong. It's an amazing piece of work. And it came out during COVID defying the odds that you can't publish a book during a pandemic. So that must feel pretty good, right? Yeah, you know, it does. I'm glad hearing you say, it, but you know, as you know, as an author, entrepreneur, you're like, am I really selling book? I don't know. Put the link in the chat and you hope people buy it. Oh, no. <laughs> you know? I know. And then you look on BookScan and you're like, what? How many books? <laughs> makes no sense. Yeah. None whatsoever. Makes no sense. But what I will say is for both of our books, we know that it's needed, right? And people are buying tons of books during the pandemic. And so they may not get to reading things right away, but knowing that you still put out good work. And the one thing that I constantly tell myself, no matter what I'm doing is what part of this equation can I solve? I wrote the best book that I could put out and you hope that people will get it and get what they need from it. And then the rest is 
left to the book gods, right? Or the people. And so for me, I just focus on the things that I can control. And that's putting out messages that I hope people will resonate with and just keep talking about it. And again, and saying yes to places and spaces that would amplify that work. I love that. So we've talked about where you were 12 years ago and 12 months ago. But before we talk about where you're going to be in 12 weeks from now, which is also very exciting, I do want to talk a little bit about this book stuff, because it's probably the number one question that I get. And you run boot camps for writers and emerging writers. And I'm always surprised when people think I either sold like 60,000 copies of my book or six copies and they feel sorry for me. I'm like, no, no, my book is great. What are you talking about? Like nobody ever understands this world. But the one thing I didn't understand, and I wish somebody in a boot camp would have told me this, is that going on a CNN or going on an affiliate is not necessarily what sells books. Like you can go on a major broadcast and sell 14 books. And then in a random week, you can sell 500 books, right? I mean, it's just wildly insane. So can you talk a little bit about your writing boot camp and maybe some of the lessons that people learn? Because I know, man, I needed this boot camp, Minda. I really needed it. Me too. I did too. I created Secure the Seat Writers Retreat because to your point, Lori, even when I became an author, I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, I didn't know what questions I should be asking. I was just happy to have a book deal. I get to write what I want to write, but I didn't know all of the different kind of business things or how much of a marketing person I was going to have to be. And I think that that was the part that I still have to like amp myself up for is how much of a marketer you are. Just because you are backed by a publisher doesn't mean your work is done. You actually are right there on the forefront. I always joke, it's like selling CDs out of the back of the trunk because you are that person showing up and being like, look at everything. You are like the QVC person at every turn. And and I don't think people tell you that. No. And Minda, one of the things that's so fascinating to me is that I know you identify yourself, at least I've heard you say this, I think, as an introvert, if I'm not mistaken. And here you are being the QVC lady, right? You're standing on the corner with your potato peeler at the corner of 42nd and Lexington selling your books. I mean, you've really had to lean into this space where you might not naturally be comfortable and you do it beautifully. Well, thank you, because it doesn't feel like natural for me all the time. I'm getting better at it. But when I found out that you're going to have to be that face and I didn't really want to be that. I'm like, can't the books just be the thing, right? That's one of the reasons why I have not put my face on the cover of my books because my publisher is like, you should put your face on. I'm like, I don't need my face on the books, you know, <laughs> you know, so just all of the business sorts of things that you don't know. Again, you think that, oh, I just write the book, but there's the editing process. There's what are you doing now? Why you're writing your book to get your audience built, all of those sorts of things. And so, yes, you might get a great spot on the news or whatever, and that helps. That's good bragging rights. But the thing that really pushes is that word of mouth that, like you said, you're the QVC lady and every single order matters. And you have to be there for that for each and every person. I was really shocked that the best way to sell books are events. And like the least effective way is by being on TV. I would have thought it was the other way around. And the other thing that really surprised me is the sense of accomplishment I had when I finally sold a book in every individual state in America. When that finally happened, I thought to myself, good Lord, I've never been to Wyoming. And someone in Wyoming was like, you know what? I'm going to buy Rudiman's book. <laughs> you know, like that one book that week, I was like, oh, that's the one I'm focused on. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a weird process. In your retreat, how do you keep people optimistic? 
optimistic because you can get a little down week to week. Yeah, I think that the one thing is the transparency because I think that, again, a lot of people don't know what they don't know. And then a lot of people think that, oh, Minda, you just go from zero to best-selling book. And it took a long time before that even happened. And so talking just about the process of those things and then having so much visibility with the memo and then trying to get visibility with Right Within in different contexts and, and not beating yourself up about it. But I think the main thing is having a community that you can talk about these things and share these things with. So yes, I talk about my history and my road. It'll be different for everybody, but I also create that community in which people, rather you're self-publishing or you go a traditional route, how do you find an agent? All of those sorts of things that I think people don't know. Or do you need 500,000 followers on social media or could you do it with 500, right? You know, we have these misconceptions of what it is. And I got a book deal with like 500 followers on Twitter. You know what I mean? And so those are the things that people don't often know about. And I think that we psych ourselves out because we think we have to show up with all these things in our crown before we get the deal. And those deals based on social media followers, there was just this really interesting story in the New York Times not too long ago about how many of those book deals fail. And you can't rely on a half a million followers because a majority of them are going to be bots anyway from the Ukraine. So publishers, while they're quick in some areas, they're slow in others. And books you think would do really well often don't based on those followers. So I love that you talk about that in that course. Well, listen, let's talk about where you're going to be in 12 weeks, because like many of us, it's new year, new you, and you've got some good stuff happening. So you've got another book coming out. How'd you do that? Where's your energy? Where's your timing? How do you schedule all this in? Well, let me say that I don't plan on writing any more books for a little while. <laughs> so that's full disclosure. Transparency is I do need a book break. And my agent is probably not going to be happy to hear me say that. But, <laughs> but, but I do. I need a break. Um, but my next book, I'm very, very happy about. It'll be my third book. It's called You Are More Than Magic. It's a young adult book for black and brown girls and their allies, their classmates and, and parents about what it's like to be 13, 14, 15 and the only one at school. How do you have conversations with your teachers, your friends, those sorts of things. I talk about my childhood in a way that I didn't think I'd ever really talk about in some of those early things that I took into the workplace with me. Lori, you're like, when we're young girls, teenage girls, there's a lot of things that you're unsure about yourself and you take some of that into the workplace with you and then you become an unsure adult. <laughs> so the things that I wish I would have known as a teenager so that I could have been better prepared to enter into a workplace that may not have seen me in the ways that I needed it to. For sure. Well, I'm so excited to read it and so happy for all of your success. And I know you're not just going to be doing the book in 12 weeks. You got other stuff going on. You're back to teaching, if I'm not mistaken, and traveling around, you know, as needed. So what does the first quarter of 2022 look like for Minda Hearts? Yes. Well, thank you. I'm still going to be encouraging people to purchase right within because like we never stop being a marketer. <laughs> Wait, they have to buy the memo as well. Come on. I mean, all, all of, them. of them, all of them, all of them. But like you said, I'm going back to my professor life in the first of the year. So I, I took time off this last semester so that I could focus on book stuff. But I'm going back to the classroom so that I can learn and encourage the next generation. So that's my focus. And then doing the speaking as necessary. But I'm going to go back to my faculty life for a little bit. I think that's great. Well, Minda, you know, I always learn a little something from you. And I'm just so pleased that you came on to talk about your career, your journey 
company and give people a little bit of inspiration for the new year. So any parting thoughts for individuals who feel stuck, who are a little scared, don't feel as if they're fully equipped to take that next step? What should they be thinking about with this new year, new you theme? I think the most important thing is to figure out what good looks like to you. I think so much of our lives, we're looking for someone else to tell us what our careers should look like, what our decisions should be, and what would it look like if you figured out what your career goals would be to benefit you, right? So maybe it is staying at that job. Maybe it's leaving. Maybe it's writing a book, but you determine what good looks like. And if you're finding that you're not getting what good looks like, who are the people that you need to have uh, conversations with to help you achieve that? And I think that let's show up for ourselves in ways that we didn't in the past year. So in order to be a new you, you got to show up for you. Minda, I know what good looks like. It looks like you. My God, you're living the dream. I love it. Thanks again for being a guest on Punk Rock HR. Thank you. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Punk Rock HR. We are proudly underwritten by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head on over to thestarconspiracy.com. Punk Rock HR is produced and edited by RepCap with special help from Michael Thibodeau and Devin McGrath. For more information, show notes, links, and resources, head on over to punkrockhr.com. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.